you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? We're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 425, a.k.a. year nine, week one. We've done this show for eight years, and now we're in our ninth year of doing the Anarchist Experience. So as always, for the last eight years, I am your host, Mr. Richie Rich, along with MC and KS. And since this is your regularly scheduled Saturday broadcast on the old clubhouse, you can find our club there at the Anarchist Experience, or you can at me at Riches for Rich, R-I-C-H-E-S, the number four, R-I-C-H, and I will hit the little invitation button when we start the live broadcast. So what is going on with you guys this week? Well, I... I had encounters with the passport office for the last, uh, well, several months. Um, I sent in my passport for renewal because, you know, they say, well, even though it expires in November, um, you're supposed to have six months of um, valid application of a passport before you should uh, travel. Which is weird, right? It's like it's a fake expiration date. Yeah, it's uh, it's valid, but it's um, but you can't use it unless uh, you've got six months of uh, valid time because it, the presumption is that you might get stuck abroad and you've got to have a valid passport before um, you know anything can happen out beyond your plans. Yeah, God so forbid I, you I have, get deported, right? <laughs> they will find a way to send you back. Oh, that'd be fine to get back. I mean, to be sent back but yeah being accepted into the country is uh, also the problem uh, at any rate so i had been traveling in um, march and right after i returned i thought well okay i'll get the renewal so i don't have this problem later and i sent it in in march and um then i noted online it says uh, well now we've had to extend the processing time for these because there's a little backlog and it didn't doesn't occur to them to add more clerks and open up more windows to process these things. So um, so then it could be 10 to 13 weeks for processing. And I have a, some travel planned. Um, I've been invited to be the main speaker at an event in Mongolia and uh, on uh, uh, economic development. And uh, they've, they've they booked a venue. Uh, they paid for the tickets, uh, which they said are very expensive even just economy fair and um all was uh, set up except that i didn't get my passport back and uh, so then as the time ran shorter and shorter i called them and they said um well you can't call unless it's two weeks yet before your departure date <laughs> i said is that business days uh, four, they said 14 days so i said business uh, days and they said no 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 it's the uh, calendar days right. okay so i waited i called again and each time you're waiting an hour and a half uh, for uh, online to to talk to somebody and then i waited the uh the fort tell 14 days and they said okay 
um, do you want to expedite it? <laughs> well, yeah, okay. So then I pay an extra fee to have it expedited. Yep. And then, um, but you can't call until five days before your uh, thing to get an actual appointment. So I called back uh, five days before the uh, the event, and and they said, oh, yeah, well, okay, now you're qualified to make an appointment at your local office, but all the appointment slots are full. So too bad. You can't get it. <laughs> So the only way you can get it is if there's a cancellation, which is not likely, but it happens. So I keep calling in. Uh, also yesterday, I thought, well, I'll take advantage of this uh, congressional service, which sometimes um, happens, uh, asking them, well, maybe you can use your influence as a congressman to uh, open up an extra slot for me. Yeah. Um, and they, they were all very nice. Everybody was very nice on the phone. I was very surprised at that because there's no particular reason for anybody to be nice if they're just a government monopoly. But they were. They were pleasant. And that made it uh, accept that no action. And uh, so I'm one week away from a departure, a little bit less than one week away from departure, and uh, still pressing ahead. Um, don't know what what's going to happen. So when you originally sent your passport back in for the normal renewal, right? Mm-hmm. Did did do they have a receipt of that? Like, oh no, we've got it, and it's just processing, or did they never? Yeah, yeah, they they did receive it. They said they received it on March the twenty third, which is two months ago. Okay, and uh, more than two months ago, and that's not enough. Uh, Ten to thirteen weeks is two and a half to three months. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that was not clear at the time. They, uh, they, uh, you know, it's drawn out because apparently a lot of people are deciding to travel now for the summer, and and uh, a lot more people have gotten in line. Of course, the government doesn't add more clerks to the line as Walmart or Amazon would do. If you had a big amount of business, people are an opportunity for business, and yeah. for government, it's just a problem. Well, but. Even still, a lot of businesses in a lot of areas are having trouble finding workers anyway. So they may want to, and, you know, they could afford it, right, because they have the unlimited funds of the taxation department to hire as many people as they need to cover this stuff. Yeah, a, a business, if they find that the that the, it's worthwhile to keep the customers or to satisfy the customers, they pay more to get somebody off the street or from some other kind of employment to, to do this job. Right. Uh, but you're right, the government has unlimited uh, funds they could do this with, but, you know, they, they're they so busy spending their money on other things. Yeah. And I know for my regular job, right, I'm now, uh, I work for a contracting company um, in the marketing department, and one of the things I get from my boss all the time, right, is it's easier to find prospects than it is to find salespeople, Right. So the, the, the working idea behind that is we would rather burn a customer than piss off a sales guy because it's just too hard to find quality sales guys willing to do the job for what they're willing to pay them, right? So if you get a disgruntled customer, don't worry about it. You know, we're on the phones, you know, all day long finding new customers. We'll find another one. And it's a weird, you know, it's, it's a weird philosophy, but that's, that's what we roll with, Right. So kind of similar, right? Like, ah, you know, you, you're either going to be a customer or not. And we don't care if you're not because we're busy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, 
if we try to bend over backwards for you, then we're going to lose a whole sales guy. And we've only got a couple of those. So we can't lose one. We hired, we're supposed to be going into our busy season. And so the sales department hired two new sales guys, right? And both of them quit within a week. Like, nope, this job is not for me. Right? Meanwhile, we're like, okay, now we had all these customers lined up for these two new sales guys. What are we supposed to do with them? Well, reschedule them or let them go, right? Like, forget it. You know, we'll just, we just keep trucking along. But I know with the, like I, like I said, I've, you know, one of the other weird things about the passport renewal process that I learned last year when I was renewing my passport, that whole six-month thing <coughs> is partially a scam, and part of it is a scam because if you renew early, you lose all that extra time, right? Yeah, like I renewed like a month early. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden my, my renewal date next time is a month sooner than the original due date, right? Like I was September 12th or something, uh, 2012 is when I first got one. And then I renewed like some, you know, middle of August last year, 2022. So now next time my deadline, my due date is like August of 2020 of 2032. Right. And if I renew in July in 2032, right, then I'll have until July of 2042. So all this, you know, bullshit about renewing six months earlier, just takes six months off of what you paid for that you never get back either. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. it's marginal, right? Cause it's six months of a 10 year deal. And you know, it's not all that expensive when you amortize it across 10 years. Right. But if they're doing that to, you know, millions of people, you know, every day of the year, right? I'm like, come on, man. If I renew my library, if if I renew my subscription to Netflix two weeks early, right? I don't lose two weeks off the end of that subscription. They just, you know, they just extend it from when it was due another two, uh, you know, another month or whatever. But they don't extend the passport the same way. No, no, no. We got you. We got your, we got your renewal in March. So now you have until March. 10 years from now instead of may we'll just we'll just keep that extra two months from you i mean what would happen if you just showed up at the office well i i thought about that actually my daughter has urged me just to go down there and and walk in online it says no walk-ins allowed Um, sure she says well just ignore that you know go down there and and see what you can do um, except I, I don't like confrontations, you know, I don't like to come down there and you know, spend a whole lot of time and effort and then, and then just be said, you know, told, well, what are you doing here? This is uh, not allowed. Um, but it may be worth it just to, just to do it. I may, I may do that next week. I've got time. You should go Maybe down there and pretend a- like you had an appointment and they screwed it up. <laughs> I've got my confirmation yeah. number right here. I don't no, know why no. it's not in your system. <laughs> I have to come up with a confirmation number or whatever. That you know? fits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've done that at like crowded restaurants. What do you mean? You don't have my reservation. I called mm. it in last week. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We'll get you a table right away. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't always work out, but it, you know, you give it a shot, right? Mm-hmm. If the, if they're willing to do it, why not? Well, shall we move along to some, news items or so that would be yeah if that's all we got for that anything going on in your world mc um nope no no uh no need for a passport yet i think actually i haven't looked at the expiration date i probably should but yeah i felt you know i felt bad about renewing mine only because 
I don't want it. Um, but it's also that's a, a an interesting side topic about, of course, um, objecting to the passports. I mean, the passports didn't exist um, about 150 years ago. They yeah, um, nobody needed passports. Nobody a, needed visas. It's a temporary um, wartime effort. You you move around the planet, um, seeking opportunity, escaping persecution or famine, and you um, that's life. I mean, there were uh, some kinds of restrictions in Europe um, uh, centuries ago when when there was uh, you know uh, the, I I remember the French had uh, obstacles to the Polish coming into France, but for the most part, through middle, the mercantilist era, um, people were presumed to be owned by their king. It was part of the kingdom. And most of the restrictions were on leaving the country because you were a productive element, uh, like a slave of the state, and you weren't allowed to leave. And a lot of states behave like that uh, today, too, utilizing the passports not for uh, entry but for exit from a country. Yeah. Um, and so all of this plays into this uh, notion, but for a, quite a long time, the United, I mean, the United States in the first hundred years, um, since the, the Revolu- American, American revolution and before that, there were no restrictions at all. As a matter of fact, the declaration of independence, um, one of this point number seven in the reasons for rebelling against England was because King George III wanted to restrict the people coming into the, into the colonies and the, Colonies said, colonists said, no, we we need the people. We want the people. We value migrants from wherever they are because they're uh, part of the labor force. Until it got too much. Then it got too much. Well, it, it first raised its head as a, um, well, I mean, there, there were objections on religious grounds. Uh, the earliest objection to newcomers were um, by Protestants against Catholics. And then it was... Um, by whites against Chinese, with the Chinese Exclusion Act was the first act that limited that limited people from um, migrating from Asia, and then it expanded to other things, which I thought was interesting because <clears throat> when they started to outlaw um, political radicals, that would have outlawed all the American founding fathers. They were all political radicals. They were all uh, willing to take um, the risk of life in challenging King George III, they would have been considered the anarchists of the day, and yet um, they would have been disallowed to enter into the country if they had been fighting against some monarch or ruler abroad. I guess again, for me, like I don't, I don't, I object to the the, I object to the passport office being a thing, right? Like again, temporary wartime effort you know, just another temporary government program type of thing that's become a permanent fixture. Um, and I don't even, you know, I didn't even really want to renew my passport. I was like, okay, once this thing expires, right, then forget about it. I don't, I don't need it anymore. Um, but the, the unfortunate side effect is it's the only form of government ID that I carry, right? Like I don't, I don't have a driver's license. I don't have a state ID, I've been in New Hampshire for five years, and the only thing I've ever carried is a passport. And, you know, part of that is you know, because I didn't even, I got it on a whim anyway. I wasn't even planning to get it when I did. It just so happens that I had to get it for another thing. 
Um, but now it's, it's the document that I use in order to get a job. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, you know, Oh, do you, you know, driver's license and birth certificate? Like I don't have it. I have a passport, you know? So I'm like, I'm compelled to maintain that in order to remain employed in that system. Mm-hmm. Right. Like until I can extricate myself from that system, which is a lot easier for people with like real skills. Like I don't have marketable skills per se. Have you, have you got a social security number? Yes. Just out of curiosity. Okay. Yeah. I so, think you have to have that to get the passport. Right. That was, that was like the two documents yeah. I think I needed was the social security yeah. card and the birth certificate. Yeah. But, but that was, you know, having that was not my responsibility, not my responsibility. That was granted to me, um, from when I was young. Right. Mm-hmm. And somehow I've managed to like not lose my social security card you know, in, mm-hmm. in all these years as well. Like I, I still have the same one I've always had. Um, ironically, just keep it, you know tucked away in, in my passport at this point. So I don't lose either of them. Um, but yeah, I didn't go, I didn't go seeking out a social security card. Um, but now that I have the passport, like I don't need that to get the job either. Right. Cause I've got the passport and you know, again, it's, if you have, if you have marketable skills, right. You can, you can get by in the black or gray market. Right. Like if you're a handyman, or a plumber or one of those things, right? You can, you can survive individually just doing cash jobs under the table for the most part. If you're, you know, if you're well known and well liked within the community, right? And like I said, I don't really, I don't have marketable skills that at this point allow me to remove myself from that system and only work under the table for people I know and like, which would be a small group anyway, because there's not a lot of people I know and even less that I like. Um, but so I'm stuck, right? I'm stuck until I find a way out, which means, all right, I got to get the passport. Like, Rich, why would you do that? Because I don't have any other choices or options, right? I don't want to get, you know, it, it's it's almost better than having the New Hampshire ID, right? Because then, you know, the, the the state members of New Hampshire, like, don't know what to do. Right. Oh, he's got Montana plates and a passport. He's not even one of us, you know, kind of a thing. Or the jobs that, you know, require it. Like, oh, you need a driver's license for this job. Well, I don't I don't have one. I've got the passport that, you know, meets the I nine criteria. So let's just roll with that and see what happens. But the whole thing the whole thing is generally nonsense. And weird, right? Like no one's no one stops migratory birds to check papers, right? No one knows what the hell the deer are doing on the border of Canada and the United States, right? Is that a Canadian moose or an American moose? Nobody knows and nobody cares, right? But human beings, for some reason, very, very important, very, very important where your national origin lies. We'll treat you different. If you're not from here, you are different. We will treat you so. And we will send you away if we have to. Get packing. Mm. There was a, it came up recently. There was a, there's a guy who is stateless. And if I remember correctly, again, I think his name's like Mike Gogolsky. Do you recognize that name at all? No. It was more of a big deal about 10 years ago. 
Well, he like renounced his U.S. citizenship or whatever when he was like in Slovakia or something like that. And the question became like, well, what now? Right. Who's going to claim this man? And apparently Slovakia or whatever um, issues an ID like a a non-resident passport of some kind. Right. Like this, this, this man is stateless, belongs to no one, but here's his travel documents. So he's got, you know, where, where would he get deported to? Who knows? Right. If they wanted to kick him out, where did they send him back to? Probably Slovakia because they're the one issuing it, but he's not one of them. Right. And it's just, you know, so it's a, it's a demonstration that it can be done. Right. But you know, do you really want to go to Slovakia? Right. That was, that was one of the big arguments with people, you know, like, well, just, just leave America. Right. You don't like America. Just leave. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause American foreign policy is so much better than the domestic policy. Right. It's not even a devil, you know, it's like, no, 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 they'll blow people up over there. At least we're not getting blown up over here yet, but who knows what to do. All right. Headlines. The political worship, uh, the political circus worship is gaining ground quickly. Why? Uh, headline LA Los Angeles spent $7,500 on a prototype bus shade that doesn't shade anything. Uh, in lieu of free banking, this one's from the Center for a Stateless Society, so who knows how that's going to go. Uh, the war on tamales. Arizona was set to legalize the sale of potentially hazardous homemade foods, but then Governor Katie Hobbs vetoed the bill. Uh, headline, taxation as a weapon against prosperity. Headline, at high school debates... Debate is no longer allowed. And finally, headline, John Kerry declares war on U.S. farmers. Government farm confiscations not off the table. Hmm. Any of those jump out at you? Well, that sounds interesting to me because I'm often talking about farm policy and farm subsidies. and all that. So this is an interesting twist on that, that it's uh, um Something the farmers object from government? What? What? what yeah. Anyway, well, the they're, farms are they're always all interesting. All right, here uh, we MC, go. do you have any preferences? No, go ahead. All right, war on war on U.S. farmers. This will not end until there is mass nonviolent noncompliance with an illegitimate federal government, the UN. Uh, WEF, CFR, CIA, FBI, IRS, WHO, Rockefeller and Gates nonprofits at all, and the various one world government operations. What's the source of this uh, story, by the way? Uh, it's a blog called The Second Smartest Guy in the World. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but pulled from information that was uh, uh, presented at the World Economic Forum. Mm, okay. There is no climate emergency. There is insufficient atmospheric CO2 at 421 parts per million. There is only a technocratic eugenics depopulation agenda in PSYOP climate change. Small farms are significant emitters of nitrogen, according to Biden's climate czar, John Kerry, who is pushing for the U.S. federal government to crack down on farming in America to combat global warming. Kerry insists that the United States must massively reduce farming to meet the radical green agenda laid out by the World Economic Forum and the United Nations. According to the former Secretary of State, the world can't tackle climate change 
without first addressing the agricultural sector's emissions and farmers in the U.S. are front and center of his plan. A lot of people have no clue that agriculture contributes to about 33% of all emissions in the world, he said during a keynote address. We can't get to net zero. We don't get this job done unless agriculture is front and center is part of the solution. So all of us understand here the depth of this mission. Delivering these remarks at the Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate Summit held in Washington, D.C., Kerry neglected to acknowledge the undeniable fact that the agriculture industry plays a vital role in providing sustenance and ensuring the survival (laughs) of all approximately 8 billion people worldwide. In recent months, food. (laughs) Yes, yes, food. But he's rich, right? So you just go to the grocery store to get food. (laughs) In recent months, leaders in Western countries have significantly intensified their criticisms of the farming sector. In the Netherlands, regarded as a testing ground for the World Economic Forum's anti-farming agenda, the Dutch government has been implementing initiatives to seize farmland. The Dutch government's proposal to confiscate and close down numerous farms to comply with the objectives outlined in the global climate agenda has received support from the European Union. The unelected European Commission in Brussels has endorsed a plan by Netherlands Prime Minister Mark Rutte, or Ruddy, who is a contributing member of the World Economic Forum. Recently, the governing body of the European Union officially endorsed measures to compel farmers to vacate their lands as part of the EU's Natura 2000 scheme, which categorizes farms as significant emitters of nitrogen. Under the plan, farmers would be offered 120% of their farm's value through a buyout program. Excuse me. However, those who decline this offer would face the risk of being forcibly removed from their land without any financial compensation. If this plan proves to be successful, it will likely be, it is likely to be replicated in other countries due to its alignment with the WEF's global environmental agenda. They want you dead. Do not comply. So you may recall, end of the article, you may recall several months ago when the farmers, you know, in, in, uh, in the Netherlands or whatever, um, were like protesting, right? How dare you, yeah. you can't cut our crops. And, you know. and before that, Sri Lanka, uh, went ba- bankrupt basically because their, their farmers were put out of business because they, they can't compete on the market. Well, okay. I mean, if, go on. So, so it's, I'm just saying it's the same situation. Except, so the people in the Netherlands saw what happened to Sri Lanka, and they're like, "Hey, we 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 won't survive with that." So protest is the only option. Okay. So I was gonna say, not being able to compete on the market is not you know not a government problem to solve, but no, it's the government created the problem by restricting the amount of fertilizers they could use in Sri Lanka. Right. So now you have that you know in in the in Europe, and again. As the article notes, you know, it's it's usually a testing ground, right? They, they fly the flag somewhere else to see how much resistance they get. And then when they get, you know, little to no resistance, then they go like, oh, yeah, we can do that here. You know, coming to, coming to a state near you, right? So your thoughts, KS? Is it, is well, it hype? Is it blown out of proportion? I, I yeah, I mean, I... I uh it's a it's a leap yet between because the, the the farmers in this country and in 
Europe and in Japan are extremely powerful. That's why they get enormous subsidies over the years. It's about ten. It's about a trillion dollars of subsidy over a ten-year period, and that's only the direct payments, not even counting sort of the indirect benefits. So I would find it very hard to believe that the uh, uh, that this um, kind of behavior that that Kerry is talking about is is going to have much impact here unless they use it in, as a way of um, of scrapping smaller farms that are competing with larger farms because then you've got big ag that, that has much more power and influence as a way of just taking over or getting rid of uh, small smaller farms, which has always been their practice anyway. But um, it, it is a puzzle that the farmers in the Netherlands were so powerless against this sort of thing. Nevertheless, um, it's a... It's a, a long ways to go from the from the panic talk to the actual act, uh, to action. So I'm not worried about it yet. Well, but we've seen it there, right? Like, what's what's the puzzle? You know, in the Netherlands, they said you know you have to. They basically said you have to cut down your emissions, which meant cutting you know killing off your cattle, right? And with 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 little to no compensation for it, just. This is the global warming agenda, and so this is what you must do, right? And the farmers protest. A question about, I mean, in the U.S., there would be demands for compensation. You know, the uh, the fact that you have to be compensated for a taking, and sure, I don't know that they have that same sort of um, uh, constitutional provisions in in the Netherlands. Maybe they don't. Well, in the, I mean, the end of the article said that they were offered 120% of their farm's value through the buyout program. But if you didn't buy out, then they just took it with no compensation, right? So it's like, you know, take the take the free money and give us the farm or we're just going to take the farm and then you get nothing, right? So like one on one hand, you get paid to lose the farm. On the other hand, you don't get paid to lose the farm, right? So either way, you lose the farm. Um, it's just a matter of like, do you, do you want to make it look like you voluntarily complied by accepting the buyout or do you want to lose the value of your farm, you know, by protesting it? Right. I always get very suspicious of these calculations of what the farm is worth or the house is worth when they're condemning it and going to take it. They say what it's worth. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, somebody's house or farm that they've lived on and grew up, it's, it's worth something different than what the government says it is. Uh, so maybe the compensation is is still um, an undervaluation. But in any case, it, sure, it, it, it but definitely an undervaluation because if, if you don't want to sell for any reasons, then it's clearly an undervaluation. Yeah, and this you know this is this comes up in the United States as well, right? Like um, my mom has been in the same house for most of her adult life. Like it's five, mm-hmm. I've known her to live in like two different houses. Um, and this is the second one. Right. And every, you know, every year her tax bill goes up because they went, Oh no, no, this house is worth a lot more than it was last year. So you owe us more money all of a sudden. Right. Same house, nothing changed really, you know, just, just where, all- with wear and tear. It's probably the, you know, there, there's a diminished value to the house in as a house 
You would think. Because it, yeah, I mean, in terms of wear and tear, you things wear down, you need to be replacing and repairing and that sort of thing. And working in that industry, that shit ain't cheap, man. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I, I, I wonder... It, they're, they're, they're always talking about, like, this generation not buying houses, right? Like, millennials are poor, downtrodden, beat down, Generation Z and whatever comes in between there, you know, are renting or sharing, co- cohabitating with friends just to make ends meet, right? I go, well, well, yeah, because the houses aren't cheap, right? And, to, and the repairs are, are outrageous, to do anything of significant value, right? And having, you know, having seen that now working with it, I go, wow, yeah. There's no way that I could, like, cut a check, you know, to re-roof the house. Like, forget about it. Who's got that kind of money? And the, the, the unfortunate answer is, like, the older generations, right, who were able to, you know, save up when the dollar was worth more and didn't have the same astronomical expenses as the current generation, I had this as a mini debate with the boss uh, yesterday, the day before, probably the Thursday night. Yeah, Thursday night. Um, again, you know, talking about like pay and compensation and whatever. And I go like, who's supposed to foot the bill, right? I've said this before. I am, I am sympathetic to the anti-work movement, right? But the, the root cause is the government's inflationary policy, right? Every, every day I go to work... Right. And not, not me personally, but just every every day, you know, I go to work, you know, for millennials and anybody, anyone currently employed. Right. Every day I go to work, I'm expected to do the same amount of work for less value. Right. Yeah. It's a pay cut. Inflation like, is a pay cut. My dollar is worth less than it was yesterday. And you, you know, the business owner, you expect the same amount of effort out of me. Like yesterday, I could have bought a cheeseburger. Right. Today, I can only buy a hamburger but I got to exert the same amount of effort to get less, right? Like hell I do. And I'm not, you know, and I'm not even sympathetic to that, right? And my boss, right, who's, who, um, you know, is, isn't even like, you know, part of the ownership team. He's just part of management. Um, had the uh, audacity to say that business owners suffer more from inflationary pressures than workers, well, they all suffer from inflationary pressures. Everyone suffers, but if it's the, the, the trickle-down thing, right, those close to the inflation get the benefit of it, right? Mm. But wages are always the last thing to go up, mm-hmm. right? I, you know, the, the, the job I was before this, right, uh, uh, rents went up before we ever got a raise, right? The job I'm at now, you know, they're always talking about like, oh, you got to get the customer a good deal now, Right, because we don't know when the manufacturers are going to increase their prices, and then we're going to have to increase our prices, mm. right? But never, you know, never does it come to, you know, never does it come to, well, we're going to have to increase our prices in order to pay people more, right? We'll we'll pass on we'll pass on the cost of manufacturing price increases to the customer, right? But we won't pass on the cost of wage raises to the customer, right? So the the, the prices go up, the owner gets his cut still. Right, but all that inflationary pressure gets stuck on the workers across industry, and so of course they're quietly quitting and not doing as much, or or not happy about going to work to to make less than they did yesterday. 
And then the question comes up, well, like, who's supposed to cover that shortfall, right? And if you, and if you say, well, the person taking the money, right, well, then, of course, you're going to end up with more people on government benefits, right? Because if the, if the job's not going to pay you enough and you make less, you make, you know, 90% of what you did yesterday and you can go get 10% benefits in food stamps or whatever it happens to be, right, it just makes sense to do so. You got to make it back somewhere. And it's not going to be from the employer and not that I'm a fan of government programs or handouts or whatever either. Right. But you know, who's, who's responsible for making that up. If, if, if the government is stealing from you, you got to get it back from the government somehow. Am I wrong about that? Like who's, you know, businesses aren't, aren't raising wages, but they're raising prices. Right. They're upset that they got to pay more in corporate taxes, but the wage earner, right. The, the, the low level worker, whatever, whatever amount it happens to be, even if it's not minimum wage, right, gets hurt the most and first because prices go up. Their, their, their uh, standard of living goes down well before they have the opportunity to, like, look for another job or move away from that, right? And then it comes to the situation where, you know, okay, you know, I've, I told my boss this at my last job before they, you know, before they closed up shop, you're not going to be able to replace me for what you're paying me, right? The, the market has moved past that and you're lucky that I'm lazy and I'm still here and that I like it here, right? Because I can go get a better job anytime, right? And you'll end up paying more to replace me plus training, right? No one will take the job for what you're paying me now. So you might as well just give me a raise and save us both the headache, right? And then the owner sold the company, and that was the end of that. But still, mm-hmm. the point was made, right? I've been loyal. Just treat me right, and I don't have to go elsewhere, right? And if I go elsewhere, I will go elsewhere, and you'll be stuck paying more anyway. So it doesn't even behoove you to do that. But my boss's response was, yeah, just go get a better job, right? I'm like, yeah, same, same thing. Go get a better job fine because the market has passed it right but and then you're going to be stuck with nothing right that's why you can't hang on to sales guys right because the the amount that they're expecting to make you know and part of this is managing expectations but the amount that they expect to make out the gate um is is far more than what they experience that they're making right and part of that is because they're new and they gotta you know it takes some time to get your feet wet and really learn the ropes of the job Right. But in the interim, it's all expenses. Right. All right. You know, drive 200 miles today, put a whole bunch of wear and tear on your car. Right. And if you don't get a sale, you get nothing or effectively nothing. And so you do that for three days. You're like 600 miles in on your car, you know, gas, food, whatever it is on the road. You go like, yeah, you know what? Even if I did get a sale, right, it's not going to make it up for all of this loss. Right. I can go elsewhere and make the same amount of money without putting that wear, or even less money without putting the wear and tear and expenses on myself. Right. And so I'll just do that. He was talking with uh, the owner's son, like the operations manager and uh, lead sales trainer or whatever. He's like, people are weird. You know, like they won't drive up from Massachusetts every Friday for the sales meeting. Like there's a sales meeting in the office every Friday. I'm like, that is weird, right? Because their whole job is to be on the road like four or five days a day, a week, 
right? Like this job is on the road. How can you not be, you know, how can you not be okay being on the road to come to the meeting? That's just, that's just part of the job. You're on the road. So you're on the road here, right? And after the meeting, you get on the road to go make some sales, but people don't want to do it right now. Is there a number that people will do it for and not quit and reduce the turnover? Yeah. Right. But it takes, it takes time to get to that. And most people aren't willing to stick it out. Right. Or most people don't think that it's possible. And so, you know, my, my suggestion is always, you got to front load it, right? You got to give them something up front or make it easy up front so that they make it through that rough period and end up being productive on the back end, but they won't front load it because front loading it is expensive or we can't pay the sales guys more. Like, why not? If they're going to be bringing in sales, right? If you're going to keep them around long enough to bring in sales down the road, just give them more now so we can get to that point, right? Otherwise you're sinking all these costs in hiring and training for them to quit in a couple of weeks, right? Then you're hiring and training again and repeating this cycle, right? Rather than breaking the cycle by doing something different. Well, probably calculate that your immediate boss is just a middle guy anyway. He's not caring about the calculation in the long run. He's just putting in time and doing things that are convenient too. I don't, I don't know that, that you could, maybe he's interested in really building a good record of performance, but maybe not. Well, no, my immediate boss is the exact opposite, Right. I would not, now that I, now that I have a general idea of what he's being paid, right, I would not do his job for what they're paying him. And he is old school, right? So he's like, whatever it takes, right? If I got to work 80 hours this week, you know, cause I'm salaried to make things happen, right? Then I guess I'm working 80 hours this week, you know? And I'm sure part of it, you know, there's probably a little bit of resentment, with me, right? Because I'm like, no, I, I work my one night. I work Thursday nights. I stay late Thursday nights, right? But I'm not, I am not available in the evenings otherwise, right? So he's there at like 8.30 in the morning. He's contractually obligated to stay until 6 p.m., right? And then for the last few hours, there's no coverage. So he goes home and works more from home. This is the storage place? No, no, no. I don't work there anymore. Oh, okay. This is the, the local contractor with the stories of the boss place. Oh, okay. Right? So he's the marketing manager, right? That's his title, marketing manager. We run a telemarketing office. What is he getting paid for that? Uh, the, the, the base salary is about 45000 And then, you know, incentives and bonuses on top of that. Big incentives and bonuses or? Well, like- so that's the other thing, right? So in April... Uh, you know, I was offered a bonus structure when I signed on in October and I was, you know, I, I was pitched, right. And we've talked about this as well. I was pitched that, you know, if we hire more sales guys, if we can get the sales team in alignment with the telemarketing team, right. Bonuses are possible. Mm -hmm. And I went good because the base pay is not really worth it unless we hit some bonuses, right. I'll take the low base pay. If you think, if you're telling me we're going to bonus, let's, let's fucking go bonus. Well, in April, uh, we hit our tier two bonus, which is significant. I don't know how much his bonus was, uh, but in April, my bonus check, uh, gross before taxes, which is unfortunate, was $5,000. Mm-hmm. 
So he got more than that, right? Well, as soon as the owner saw how much he was paying out in bonuses, you know, word came down that the bonus structure was about to be changed. I well, that's not cool. You know, I'm here for the bonuses, right? And if you're telling me we're only going to hit this once, right? And then we, you know, and we're not going to be able to do it again because we made all this money for the owner and all of a sudden he doesn't want to pay out, right? There, there's a discrepancy there. Um, but yeah, so, you know, whatever his bonus was makes the job worth it. Uh, but now he won't bonus as much next month, right? If we, if we hit this, if we do the same amount of sales next month, our bonus will be like 60% less or 40% less. It'll be 60% of what we made in April for the same amount of output. All right. I go, well, you're going to, you're going to pay me 60% less and expect the same output. You're crazy, right? You pay me 60% less, you get 60% less effort, right? I'm not going to work that hard for that little bonus, right? I'll fuck, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes for what we were doing, right? But, eh, you know, you got to find another way to show me the money. If it's not going to be in the bonuses, it's got to be in the, in the base. I'm wondering if in the remaining time we might uh, go back to the headlines. Sure, if I'm boring you that much. Which headline do you want to do? <laughs> um, well, maybe MC would like to pick out one. Yeah. Oh, no, pick anything. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. In lieu of free banking from yeah, the Center for a Stateless good. Society. I like these because it's something that we don't always agree with, uh, but they're a left, left market anarchist think tank and media center. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I don't have, eh, well, whatever, I'll say it. Uh, unfortunately founded by like a known pedophile um, who's, you know, who left, he like admitted to it and then left the organization and the organization carries on. And I think like late last year or whatever, I was trying to see if there was any updated information about the dude that founded it and nothing like it just, that was like the last internet piece of in- information on the founder. And then he just disappeared off the planet. Uh, in lieu of free banking, In libertarian and market anarchist circles, the concept of free banking has always been an important ideal for a genuinely free and healthily competitive society. This entails a monetary system where banks not only hold currency, but can issue their own currency or banknotes without the need for a centralized treasury. As such, the supply of money would be determined entirely by the demand for it and the willingness of financial institutions to issue it with differing reliability, interest rates, and general terms being core competitive factors. The origins of free banking lie in the 19th century when countries like the United States and Scotland lacked the strong central bank systems they have today. Though the former was more of a decentralized but still status system, the latter was a largely unregulated open market for uncharted banks revolving around three main chartered banks and ultimately proved highly stable and successful. More explicitly, ideological arguments for free banking would go on to be popular among individualist anarchists in the United States in the mid-19th to early 20th century. Benjamin Tucker, for example, argued that the monopoly of the issuing of currency was one of the four principal importance to state capitalism and that drawing on Josiah Warren and uh, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, quote, if the business of banking were made free to all, more and more persons would enter into it until the competition should become sharp enough to reduce the price of lending money to the labor cost. 
which statistically show to be less than three-fourths of 1%. In that case, the thousands of people who are now deterred from going into business by the ruinously high rates which they must pay for capital with which to start and carry on business will find their difficulties removed. Lysander Spooner, touching on some other specifics, speculates that, quote, under perfect freedom in banking, substantially all the material wealth of the country can be used as banking capital. The amount of currency which this capital is capable of furnishing is so great that there could never be scarcity. And the competition is, is furnishing it would doubtless always be so great as to the rate of interest of very low figure. Other thinkers like Friedrich Hayek in his 1976 book, The Denationalization of Money, would go on to argue that a free banking system would not only promote innovation and flexibility in financial services, but also allow for greater interna international exchange and trade and reduce the very need for government intervention into the economy. However, Hayek's argument lacks some more radically anti-capitalist elements that the early individualist thinkers had, the core one being how free banking would help lead to mutual banking and ultimately tip the balances of class power within the market system itself. Mutual banking is a financial scheme whereby a bank relies on mutual credit as opposed to lending money at interest and involves members of said mutual banks pooling their own resources and extending credits to one another based on trust and credit worthiness. As Kevin Carson writes, in a genuinely free banking market, any voluntary grouping of individuals could form a cooperative bank and issue mutual banknotes against any form of collateral they choose. With acceptance of these notes as tender being a condition for membership, and more than just providing a more flexible model for financing, Carson points out that we're we're the property we're the property owned by the banks or by the working class freed up for mobilization as capital by such beings, and the producers allowed to organize their own credit without hindrance, the resources at their disposal would be enormous. And this abundant cheap credit would drastically alter the balance of power between capital and labor. And returns on labor would replace returns on capital as the dominant form of economic activity. In fact, Gary Elkin goes as far as to maintain that, quote, because of Tucker's proposal to increase the bargaining power of workers through access to mutual credit, his so-called individualist anarchism is not only compatible with workers' control, but would in fact promote it. For if access to mutual credit were to increase the bargaining power of workers to the extent that Tucker claimed it would, they would then be able to demand a workplace democracy and pool their credit by and own companies collectively. This would eliminate the top-down structure of the firm and ability of owners to pay themselves unfairly large salaries. Unfortunately, in the contemporary United States and most of the rest of the world, we do not have a free banking system, and thanks to substantial regulations, are very limited in our ability to put together substantial mutual credit schemes. So while we should continue to advocate for a more open financial system, we should also take a look at what currently exists as a means to achieve more immediate proxies for free and mutual banking. One good place to start is credit unions, nonprofit, member-owned financial cooperatives that provide services to their members. They offer a variety of financial services like a standard bank, such as savings and checking accounts, debit and credit cards, and loans. However, a core difference is that the profits earned by providing such services are returned to the members via dividends and lowered fees and interest rates. Most credit unions have eligibility requirements like living in a particular geographic area, working in a specific profession, or belonging to a common organization outside of the credit union. If someone meets these requirements and becomes a member, 
They not only have access to standard banking services, but can also participate in the credit union's governance and decision-making. Thanks to both these community and cooperative factors, credit unions also often have a general focus on not just returns to members, but also community development and social responsibility. And while credit unions today sit firmly within the regulatory structure of state capitalism, the money monopoly specifically, there are some strategies that they might and sometimes do utilize that could serve as immediate alternatives to free mutual banking. In fact, credit unions already leverage mutual credit in some of their provided services. A number offered shared savings loan programs by which members can extend credit to each other without the usual restrictions of a lending institution. Others have community development funds and or revolving loan funds for small businesses and community enterprises with no credit history or access to traditional lending services or sources. For real-world examples, look at the Vancouver City Savings Credit Union and the Self-Help Credit Union serving both the Carolinas and Florida. The former has a shared success program whereby members can pool their savings to secure a loan for a community project or other collective purpose. The latter has a variety of programs based on mutual credit, such as shared secured loans, by which members can use their co-op savings account as collateral. Another interesting strategy deployed by Alternatives Credit Union in Ithaca, New York, alongside shared secured loans, is linking up with community currency systems like time banks. In a time bank system like the local Ithaca Hours, members exchange services on the basis of equal time, X hours of labor for X hours of labor. In Mutual Life Limited, anthropologist Bill Maurer's account of how the Alternative Credit Union accepts deposits in hours and allows hours for memberships, loans, check bounce, and automatic transfer fees, as well as in exchange for a socially responsible investing package. So in, in addition to credit unions expanding their mutual credit service, they might also take a page from the Ithaca Hours scheme and integrate time banking into their traditional banking services so that members could have access to a wide variety of financial services while promoting community building and mutual aid. But as always, context is key. Just as true mutual banking requires an unregulated market in banking and currency production, credit unions as they exist today rely heavily on the same and or similar regulatory frameworks as standard banks. Arguably, the same monopolistic control that has led to political economic situations where it is unclear free banking could be the panacea that it was originally presented as by the 19th century individualist anarchists, Lawrence Labadie, the heir of Warren Spooner and Tucker, according to Herbert C. Roseman, writes, how later in life Tucker became more and more convinced that property and wealth concentrations had reached such a pass that even if it could be inaugurated, free banking alone would not be sufficient to break the monopolistic power of capital. Labadie would express a similar sentiment in the last decade of his life, helping to articulate the great pessimist challenge now faced by market anarchists today. What are we to do in lieu of free banking? Perhaps the answer is to rethink our focus on socializing access to capital towards gaining more immediate control over the means of production. Tucker writes uh, how Proudhon and Warren found themselves unable to sanction any such plan as the seizure of capital by society, but through opposed to socializing the ownership of capital, they aimed nevertheless to socialize its effects by making it, its use beneficial to all instead of a means of impoverishing the many to enrich the few. But maybe it's time to just start thinking more like syndicalists and autonomists positioning ourselves as not just as market anarchists, but as explicitly class struggle market anarchists, 
not unlike Dyer Lum and Joseph Labadie in the 1800s or Carson and Logan Glitterbaum today, who seek immediate, everyday forms of resistance as a means to leverage control by workers in the broadest possible sense, including homemakers, students, the un- and underemployed, reserve army of labor, etc., over spaces of production in order to establish economic autonomy for communities and dual power in opposition to the dominant state capitalist economy. Along with attempts to potentially radicalize credit unions, we need a concerted effort towards cooperative development, radical unionization, and greater work, worker power in general. We need to help establish a free association of producers that can exchange among themselves without centralized intervention and often via counter-economic means to form something like Samuel Edward Conkins III's Agora, a space of non-violent exchange kept safe from state violence, the perfect condition to establish proper banks of the people, as Proudhon called the concept, on the basis of mutual credit. Uh, end of the article. So was, is this... Uh, with all the bank upheaval going on right now and, you know, defaults on the table, uh, is this a viable alternative for the regular people to, to get behind to protect the value of their wealth? Did you follow all that? <laughs> um, I didn't follow all of that, no, but I was fascinated by the fact that he's referring to Benjamin Tucker and uh, Lysander Spooner um, uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek, and um, the most uh, recent one that he cited, uh, Samuel Konkin III of uh, the Agoras Society, which was, uh, I mean, these were all very radical libertarian positions on free banking, and he pointed out a lot of good stuff about the Scottish um, experience and, and all that. And But I have to say, this guy is beyond me in terms of his ability, his his knowledge of and grasp of the all these options that have been offered out there. Right. So where, where were you lost, about, MC? Uh, the whole thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. You, you can give me a summary if you want. <laughs> well, I, I think the idea is, again, with the current banking system the way it is, right, much like we just discussed about, in, you know, inflationary pressures on the lower working class people, right, a lot of that stems from the centralized banking system we have today. And so if you have a centralized banking system basically impoverishing the lower, the lower and middle class as it is doing through those inflationary pressures, uh, alternatives must be sought out by those individuals, right, in order to uh, relieve themselves from the centralized banking system, right? So he mentioned uh, community currencies. He mentioned the Ithaca hours, uh, collective banking, right? Uh, free, you know, free banking. And then, you know, if you can't get to a free bank because the current central bank is so onerous and so embedded into the fiber of society, right? What can you do now? And the answer was, well, move the credit, move the goalpost of the credit unions, right? Or move the, uh, what's the, the Overton window of credit unions to do more for the people, uh, than they're currently doing under the regulations that they are currently structured under. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, the the other alternative is be your own bank, use Bitcoin. Yeah, I'm, mm. I'm a surprised they didn't mention that at all in the article, but yeah. Yeah. Um, that That's that's like the ultimate solution at, at the moment uh, because 
uh, well, you can't print more more Bitcoin. And so n- nobody's really in control of it, and that's why it's useful. Right. I just, my fear with Bitcoin, and this is not really a fear, my concern with Bitcoin is it's all well and good for us to spout off, you know, the, the line of be your own bank, mm-hmm. right? But I don't think that the average person is ready to or wanting to be their own bank. Oh, I, I 100% agree. Right. And so those people, when you, when you say like, be your own bank, get a Bitcoin wallet, right? And lose all the protections you have of the FDIC and whatever the credit union protection one is, right? Don't ever lose your keys because then all your fucking money's gone forever. Right? Yep. <laughs> that's, that's not a good value proposition when trying to bring people into Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. Yeah, right? that's, that's true. And that is evident in the fact of the abundance of, of exchanges, right, that popped up since the inception of Bitcoin, right? These places that, oh, no, we'll hold it for you just like a bank, right? And then you get the predictable result of just like a bank, they squander the money. They don't actually have it in reserves, right? They're over leveraged, you know, overvalued, and then poof, they're gone the next day. And unlike a real bank, right, you're afforded no protection against that in the crypto space. Yeah. So so it's tough, right? Like I'm with you, be your own bank, get a wallet, you know, put some fucking effort into it. Um, but also, you know, the, you, you know, diversify as well. Right. Like I've, I don't think I don't, well, maybe, maybe one was set up for me by my parents as a child. Right. But I, I current as an adult, since I've had the opportunity to, you know, open bank accounts, I've never had a real bank. I've always used credit unions. It just works for me. Like I'm always dumbfounded going into like a real bank and watching like all the forms and procedures and whatnot. Go ahead. What was uh, complicated, a little confusing to me when you deal in money or currency or gold or silver or something like that, then you're dealing with a fungible unit. But when they talked about time banks and time exchanges and time that seems very very fluid very hard to define because i mean okay suppose that i've offered a, an hour of credit in um, teaching economics with somebody uh doing an hour of uh, plumbing yep. and then um, those hours are very very hard to quantify and and uh, have steady in value i mean you know how do i know that that i mean an hour of of uh, economics, well, am I going to make it a worthwhile pack uh, filled with knowledge of uh, about economics, or am I going to slough it off and say read a book? Uh, right. Um, so, and the same thing with the plumber. Maybe he's good plumber or bad plumber. There's a lot of quality 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 factors that come involved when you deal with labor as opposed to um, right. a commodity. So it's unfortunate that again, this was a scam. Uh, not the Ithaca Hour, but what I'm about to say. Um, a long time ago in the earlier inceptions of the free state project, like I want to say 2007, 2008, like, you know, the, the late aughts, right. There was a member of the free state project here in New Hampshire that issued his own currency and he called it the anarcho Jesse labor note. Right. And I don't know what he sold them for, but it was basically like you got one hour of Jesse's time, Right. And he would do for you 
whatever he could competently do within that hour, right? If you wanted him to mow grass, he can mow grass. If you wanted him to troubleshoot your computer, he could troubleshoot your computer, right? Like if he had the capacity to do it, you could buy an hour of his time to get it done. Um, And then again, he like moved and left everyone holding the bag and took the money. Um, But here's from the Wikipedia for the Ithaca Hour. Uh, The Ithaca Hour is a local currency formerly used in Ithaca, New York, and was one of the longest-running local currencies, though it is now no longer in circulation. Um, One Ithaca Hour is valued at generally U.S. 10, so $10, and is recommended to be used as payment for one hour's work, although the rate is negotiable. The Ithaca Hours are not backed by national currency and cannot be freely converted to national currency, although some businesses may agree to buy them. In 2002, no. a one-tenth hour was introduced, partly due to the encouragement and funding alternatives, federal credit union feedback from retailers who complain about the awkwardness of only having large denominations with which to work. It's my understanding that there have probably been hundreds of alternate currencies that, have been, that people have developed across the country. Yes. You know, some local things to get people to purchase locally, others that were gold and silver-based. I remember one of the most prominent ones was the Liberty Dollar, and of course that yep. operated for 10 years or so, but then was shut down, conf- all the gold and silver confiscated, and and Bernard Nothaus, uh, uh ultimately 10 years in how- under house arrest for the yeah. um, this. Uh, so, you know, but um, there have been a lot of them that, where they weren't prosecuted, right? They were just clearly not a U.S. dollar. They weren't counterfeiting. They were trying to yeah. establish a currency. Well, um, and the Ithaca Hour is probably the most prominent one of those. Really? Okay. So, yeah. the, I mean, the, when when people start to think about this, right, if they're old enough, right, the easiest mm-hmm. thing for me to say is like Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You you mm-hmm. buy Chuck E. Cheese currency with U.S. Mm-hmm. dollars, right, and you can only spend that currency in Chuck E. Cheese. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a local currency. It's like mm-hmm. it's local to only this specific thing, right? Play all the games you want, you know, using their currency. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you're done, right, if you've got leftover currency, right, the only thing you can do is hold on to it until next time you visit their place, right? Because you're not going to get anything for it outside of those walls. Would they redeem the to- tokens? I don't think they did. No, they? that's that's yeah, why. You yeah. use it or lose it. Or not even yeah. lose it. You just take it home with you. Right, mm-hmm. and you got you got the the money sack full of Chuck E. Cheese tokens for the next time you go, mm-hmm. right? Or you're encouraged to spend it before you leave, right? They've already got the mm-hmm. dollars; you might as well use it. Mm-hmm. So Ithaca hours, any other local currency, the same way, right? It's limited circulation, but meant to to get out of the Federal Reserve system, right? And that's you know Bernard von Nothaus and the Liberty Dollar. That was it, right? Mm-hmm. Stop, you know, and it was it was silver. It was silver tokens. Or mm-hmm. silver-backed pieces of paper, right? Warehouse receipts mm-hmm. for silver. Mm-hmm. Um, where the warehouse receipts went wrong was again government intervention, right? When the mm-hmm. government, when the state gov, when the federal government, you know, broke into his warehouse and confiscated all his tokens, right? His redeemables, right? Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, the the paper Liberty dollars were worth less uh, because you could no longer redeem them for actual silver. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, if, if you trust the audits, right, every, every Liberty, every paper Liberty dollar that was issued had a, you know, had an ounce of silver uh, in the warehouse at some point, at some point. Mm-hmm. 
And then from that, there was, oh man, I forget what the acronym was. Um, but some of the people that worked with bon- Bernard Von Nauthaus, uh started uh, a silver exchange currency. I forget what it was, but it was like, you know, any anybody could mint their own silver, right? And if you were part of the organization, you would get the organization stamp, right, on your silver or be allowed to use their stamp, verifying that this was indeed one ounce of silver. And so they, you yeah. know, they had numerous numerous minters and numerous. Um, retail outlets or whatever, you know, taking these, uh, you know, taking this currency, um, I think it was like AOCS or something. AOC? <laughs> um, the American uh, Open Currency Standard, I, I think oh, is what it was. Okay. Yeah. But, or, or something to that effect. I don't remember exactly, but that's, that's what just popped into my head. But yeah, same, same idea, right? Predates Bitcoin. Um, so what was the grounds for, for confiscating it? Because the, the, the the paper currency bore no resemblance at all to U.S. dollars. Um, there was no way that it could be confused as a counterfeiter would want you to yeah. um, be confused. I mean, uh, and um, we've, and we've he was talked actually about this offering before. something worth more. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah we've, we've talked about this before, but I'll, I'll, I'll remind you. Um, it was the method by which Bernard... Uh, uh, suggested people circulate it, right? Mm. So he had a one ounce round of silver valued at the time anywhere between, you know, 17 and $22, right? Mm-hmm. But he had it stamped at $50. Like the MSRP for a Liberty dollar was well above the spot price of the metal itself. Oh, okay. And then he said, when you go to the store... And you have to like spend this Liberty dollar, right? You drop it into the cashier's hand and the cashier will look at the Liberty dollar worth 17 to $22 or whatever on your $40 purchase, see that it is stamped at 50 and will tender it at 50 and give you $10 and change. Mm-hmm. Now preying on the uh, dumb fuckery of cashiers, right? We all know that the business owner at the end of the day cannot deposit that round of silver into the bank. Mm -hmm. Right. And so theoretically he is out the $50 from that transaction. Right. And or out the surplus value of the, uh, of the overage of the stamp value over the spot, uh, over the spot price of the metal. Right. Mm -hmm. So he, he lost $50 worth of goods, right. Of which if, even if he sold the silver back to a silver dealer, right, was only going to get 22 or $23 out of it. Was that true of the paper too? That it was uh, like a a note for a um, hundred dollar note on the surface of it, which might be one ounce of silver, um, bore a real big difference than what between the, the face value of it and the real value of the silver. I don't know. I don't know about the the, the certificates um, because those. I don't think the certificate circulated as well as the rounds, right? The, okay. the rounds yeah. was specifically like drop it in their hands so they feel the weight of it and then do what I just said. And the paper, right, because it didn't look like any U.S. coin, right, like you drop a $50 round, like, oh, this is, this is the new thing from the U.S. government. It must be legit, right? I'll put it in here with my silver dollars, mm-hmm. right, type of a thing. Um, I don't know how the paper circulated, but the, the drop the specifically— coins- What's that? Had it's true the coins I think had a 
head of Miss Liberty, uh, Liberty face on yep. the front, um, similar to the face that you would see on a silver dollar or something. Yep. Now, I'm not saying it's counterfeit. They, the, you know, in, during the court hearings, they suggested that it was um, trying to counterfeit a quarter, which is bizarre, um, and the jury was moronic, which is why he was convicted. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I'm of the opinion that his methodology is what got him into trouble more so than just issuing a new, t- uh, a new currency. Which, which, in another way, you look at it, the government does that all the time, too. The amount of silver in a uh, silver dollar isn't anywhere near the amount you would expect. Um, sorry about this. Uh, no worries. The, the, the amount of silver in, or metal in any U.S. coin is worth a, a lot less than the face value of it, too. <laughs> Except for, like, pennies. Right, it, it cost okay. it cost well, them like copper. four cents to mint a penny. Well, which is why they don't use copper. Yeah. But pennies are a lost leader as far as U.S. Yeah. currency is concerned, and the nickel's like not far behind. Mm-hmm. Right, it we we are spending money to be able to have pennies in circulation. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we're well over time. So, final thoughts, MC. Any final thoughts? Uh, no thanks. <laughs> All right, that'll no, do it for us then. <laughs> you guys know where to find us: anarchistexperience.com. On Telegram, t.me slash anarchist experience or t.me slash the anarchist experience. And if you would like to contribute to the show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. Aloha.